Welcome back to Screen Time. I'm Ro Khan. I'm Richard Roper. Happy birthday, Jerry Maguire. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. Wait till you hear mm. and think about it and put into your brain sack. Your what? What <laughs> the anniversary number is for Jerry Maguire. Every time <laughs> these things happen, you're like, no. Can't be. <laughs> well, we'll tell you about it in just a second. But first, let me tell you that... The Roman Roper Podcast is being brought to you by AmericanEagle.com. The digital landscape is changing rapidly, and to compete in today's business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, development, e-commerce, mobile apps, digital marketing services, drives your overall business success. Because they believe that today's online world is your business opportunity. Visit AmericanEagle.com today to get started. Jerry McGuire is old enough to get married. Not actually Jerry Maguire himself or Tom Cruise, but the movie itself, that's about the average age of an American getting married at 25. So uh, Jonathan Lipnicki, who played the kid, who famously said the human head weighs eight pounds, which it doesn't, uh, he'd jo- be old enough to get married. Right, well, I mean, Jonathan Lipnicki, you know, is almost at a point where he's at a midlife crisis now, isn't exactly. it? Exactly. 1996. December of 1996 was one of those months where... We got a, a trio of films that we're going to talk about that you know have had a lasting impact on the popular culture. I, and I do want to lead, as you mentioned, with uh, Jerry Maguire, Cameron Crowe, the great Cameron Crowe. You know, had already done some really good stuff, but was really coming into his own as a. I I love him. Even the films that people don't love yeah, by Cameron Crowe, like Vanilla Sky, I think are are just absolutely beautiful. He's a wonderful writer. Uh, almost famous is kind of a little bit based on his own experiences as a young writer, as Best Times at Ridgemont High is as well. Right. Uh, you know, because he came up as this, you know, this young uh, wonderkind, as they say, right? Wonderkind, not wonderkind. Wonderkid. Wonderkind. It was a whole Ted Lasso <laughs> running theme. Um, but, you know, the, the magic of Cameron Crowe, mm-hmm. Rokan, yeah. is that he made, it's routinely mentioned among the greatest sports films of all time, but he made a film in which we come to really love a sports agent. It's almost like a challenge. All right, let's, let's take, you know, who are you going to make? How about an agent? Make him, and I have nothing against the sports agents out there. Right. They'd be the first to tell you they don't really see themselves as the lead in movies. Right. That's true. That's true. And it is based on an agent. Well, okay, before I even say that, there are a number of agents who claim yeah. that it's based on them. Right. But there is one that... You know, sort of famously been out there saying that, and Cameron Crowe never really stopped him from saying that. Yeah, and also uh, uh, Lee Steinberg uh, yeah. is the name of the agent, who was, who uh, you know, one of the most respected agents. There are some agents that, first of all, sometimes when I see that an agent really rubs uh, all the owners the wrong way, I'm like, well, good, he's advocating for his clients, you know? I mean, right. agents aren't supposed to be your friend if you're on the other side. You and I, have had some great agents who, you know, certain program directors and, and, and TV uh, executives can't stand. And that's, yeah. what, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll tell the story very quickly. You and I were in radio together and a program director came in and saw a deal that I had and, and called screaming saying, this is one of the worst deals I've ever seen because it allowed me to do some other things. And I'm like, it's only one of the worst deals you've ever seen from your side of the desk, pal. My agent carved out a great deal. So too bad for you. Right. Um, and we were talking in the last podcast about all the money that's going to these baseball players. And Lee Steinberg, of course, was a sports agent. He also did some television and all kinds of stuff. Lee Steinberg, by the way, is a total revolutionary cultural mm-hmm. figure. And maybe it's one you've never heard of. But 
had Lee Steinberg never have been born, yeah. <laughs> the entertainment world would look very different than it does now. So. And who's the agent? Uh, Scott Boras, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, who was a pioneer in terms of, you know, he'd be the first time being a real asshole. Yeah. And, and you know, owners would say, I won't deal with him. And they'd be like, well, you have to because he's representing. And he would get uh, ball players when they were just coming up. Right. He was all about getting them the best deal. That was it. That's what he did. And he would say, you know, we'll sit out if we have to, or we'll do this or play. Well, you know, hey, these billionaires didn't get to be billionaires by being, you know, non like, not like Mr. Potter in, in It's a Wonderful Life. So right. they met their matches. But Jerry Maguire is really this, you know, this warm romantic comedy about mm -hmm. a, an agent who has a crisis of conscience. He writes this manifesto about how we, we need to change how we are, which leads to um, him getting fired. Mission statement, you mean? Yeah, the mission statement. Yeah. Uh, and then Kelly Preston, the late Kelly Preston, oh. one of her greatest roles, she's a, a, a PR executive who's with Jerry Maguire and then is not with him. As soon as he, she's like, what? You're not about greed and uh, the, the, you know, the art of self. And Renee Zellweger plays the, you know, the, the timid assistant at the agency who's the only one that walks out with Jerry and helps him start his own, basically one client agency, his client being Cuba Gooding Jr. Are you ready, Jerry? I'm ready. Just want to make sure you're ready, brother. Here it is. Show me the money. Say it with me one time, Jerry. Show you the money. Oh, no, no. You can do better than that, Jerry. I want you to say it with you with me, then, brother. Hey, I got Bob Sugar on the other line. I better hear you say it. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Show you the money. Not, not show you. Show me the money. Show me the money. Yeah. Louder. Show me the money. That's it, brother, but you got to yell that shit. Show me the money. I need to feel you, Jerry. Show me the money. Jerry, you better yell. Show me the money. Show me the money. Do you love this black man? I love black people. I love black people. And that worked pretty well for him at Oscar season yeah, because he got to get up and basically redo that thing in front of the entire Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. Yeah, Best Supporting Actor. Uh, it, it got five Academy Award nominations. Tom Cruise was actually nominated for Best Actor. and It got Best Picture nominated. It didn't win those. It was a huge commercial hit. It's one of the most quotable movies that we've seen in the last 25 years. We mentioned The Human Head Weighs Eight Pounds. Show Me the Money. Uh, you Had Me at a Low... Not at hello. That's allo. You had me at allo. You had me at hello. You complete me. In fact, uh, remember Bruce Springsteen did that wonderfully uh, sentimental Secret Garden song, you know, which is you know in the movie. And one of those local DJs somewhere did that old time honored trick of dropping in clips from the movie in the song, and then the special Secret Garden remix like became a hit single. There are not too many movies that have that many quotable lines of dialogue that could be part of a song that's true and we go back to cameron crow whose great stock and trade is romance period he knows how to differentiate between sex and love in mm -hmm. a way that most writers and directors can't pull off it's always so real because yeah. you have at the beginning of the film you got a really funny sex scene right with jerry mcguire and yeah. the press agent yeah right kelly preston and then you have this long kind of building up romance where 
you're not exactly sure if those two are going to get together. Are they going to get together? You can tell that they really like each other. She likes him a lot, mm-hmm. and he's not noticing her, and then it comes around. And the romance of that builds in sort of this old Hollywood way. Absolutely. And, yeah. and the support beautiful. group, uh, Bonnie Hunt, uh, who's oh. wonderful, is, uh, you know, the sister, and they're all like, you know, sitting around in this circle, and then he comes in with the big speech. I mean, it just gets you. And yeah, even in a movie like We Bought a Zoo, with the aforementioned uh, Matt Damon, we mm-hmm. just talked about in a previous podcast, uh, you get this beautiful romance with Scarlett Johansson. Right. You know, it, even and that's another one inspired by a true story. So Jerry Maguire, I, I recently rewatched it. I think it's still terrific. And I want to talk about another film from December of 1996, Ro, and that is Scream. Hello. Hello. Who is this? You tell me your name, I'll tell you mine. <laughs> I don't think so. What's that noise? Popcorn. You making popcorn? Well, I'm getting ready to watch a video. Really? What? I'll do some scary movie. You like scary movies? Uh Uh-huh. You never told me your name. Why do you want to know my name? I want to know who I'm looking at. Someone is playing a deadly game. This is a game changer right here. Yeah. Because it makes the slasher film... A comedy, but also a little bit of a drama, and you're never sure what tone it's going to take. But unlike a lot of movies that shift tone in the middle of the movie, you're like, oh, man, that doesn't work. It worked. The thing about this was uh, Wes Craven, of course, who was a horror meister and master and pioneer, directed it. uh, But I think he'd be the first to say that the really revolutionary thing was Kevin Williamson's script, which, as you mentioned, took the genre and flipped it. And I think after 25 years, we can talk about the fact that, and, you know, this again is 1996, came out right before Christmas, so nothing leaked out in advance. And Drew Barrymore was listed as the primary star of Scream. Right. And we get the classic, you know, ghost face. We find out, you know, later, you know, the killer on the phone, you know, I know you're alone and where are your parents and all that stuff. And she lasts about, what, seven minutes or eight minutes and she's <laughs> right. killed. Right. And it's not a dream. It's not a fantasy, and that just stunned audiences. And then it became the story, really, of Sidney Prescott, who's the Nev Campbell character. And you had this great supporting cast, you know, Courtney Cox, Rose McGowan, Skeet Ulrich, uh, David Arquette, we mentioned. Uh, you know, Just a really, really terrific cast of actors, young, some of them better known than others, uh, giving us this very much, you know, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th kind of feel. But again, the characters kept talking about horror movie cliches right i'm not going into the garage by myself i'm not splitting off oh we shouldn't have empty sex because those are the couples that get killed immediately but then they'd get killed so it kept it kept turning itself on its edges you know and it was brilliantly done got great reviews and made huge money yeah one of those movies when you first saw it you're like oh it can't live up to the hype totally did and i want to go back to nev campbell who was already a bit of a tv star party of five party of five when, when it came out. And, and Nev Campbell had this one move, right, where, you know, it, she would squint her face and her eyes would blink. And you're like, you, you just wait for the Nev Campbell, right? It's just and, adorable. And you thought that she was going to be a forever star. But then there's Courtney Cox, who was not yet a star. Yeah. But when she ended up on the Friends cast, she uh-huh. was the biggest star in that cast because of that movie. And really a great performance as this, you know, this uh, tabloid reporter, you know, uh, everybody is terrific in this. Uh, numerous sequels. After a while, the joke, you know, they were making jokes about their own jokes, which became just too meta. We are getting a new Scream movie uh, soon. I think early part of next year. It'll be interesting if they can do something fresh with it. But the original, 
as a standalone film, even if they never did any follow-ups. Uh, it not only uh, was a huge hit and really kind of revived the genre, but also was an easy Halloween costume for years to come. I'll just be Ghostface, put on a black sheet and that stupid mask, and you're good to go. <laughs> and, of course, Courtney Cox met her then-to-be-future husband and then then-to-be-future ex-husband, David Arquette. Dewey! Right. The bumbling deputy. Yeah. How about that? And, you know, and there's a guy, this is a little bit of an undersung actor and talent in Hollywood there, too, because David Arquette not only, you know, was really also interesting to watch work. Yeah. He turned out to be not a bad business guy, as it turns out. He's figured out different ways to promote himself and have clubs and things, and, and has had a little bit of a renaissance in recent years, because for a while there, it was all just about the tabloid uh, material and his own kind of self-destructive uh, yeah. habits. But I think he's doing better now, and we're happy about yes, that. Yes, we are. And so is Courtney. And rounding out our birthdays are these two dudes. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> Beavis and Butthead hit the road to seek their fortune. Find romance. Can I help you with that? I love you. Come to Butthead. You got two seconds. Is that gonna be enough time? Win fame. I am Gorgonio. These are the most dangerous men in America. I want these faces in front of every Fed and two-bit sheriff within a thousand miles. Get the hell out of the cockpit! Get that now! And do an entire nation. Uh, Beavis and Butthead do America. It was the 1996 movie. The show had already been a, a huge hit, right, on MTV. Actually kind of revolutionized that whole thing, too, because they were, the, you know, Mike Judge, who's going on to do a lot of other great things. But, you know, these crudely drawn characters, he did the voices for them. I'm going to refrain from doing my Beavis and or my Butthead. We were all doing it. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I just didn't refrain. Uh, but the movies, you know, there was still an appetite to see these two idiots. Uh, yeah. You know, you know, a lot of great uh, sly, satirical stuff and then just stupid humor. Uh, but that movie did very well. And the truth was, it really didn't cost a whole lot of money because the animation was made The Simpsons look like Pixar. Yeah. And then Mike Judge was doing half the voices. Right. It was also a way for kids who were watching MTV at that point, whose parents were not watching MTV and weren't sure exactly what was going on on MTV. And as you point out, MTV wasn't about videos anymore. At no. that, that turn, right? More than a decade into their existence, they decided, hey, the videos aren't really going to be the play anymore. We got to come up with programming and Beavis and Butthead being among them, right? And so that was a Jenny McCarthy and Beavis and Butthead. That's what they they yeah. had in common. At and they, and again, they were smart enough to you know a lot of Beavis and Butthead, the TV show, uh, was these two clowns watching videos, you know, little right. snippets, and they would just do wordless reaction shots <laughs> that were hilarious because they were pretty much mirroring what we at home were thinking. Yep, watching White Snake. Yeah. So the movie did very well. Uh, so you had. You had a great romantic comedy, sports movie. You had a revolutionary horror film, and you had a really stupid animated film all coming out <laughs> in December of 1996. And yes, 25 years ago, sir. All three of them changed cinema. Yeah. He said pretentiously. Let's talk about Portillo's. They are known for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients right down to the poppy seed bun. And of course, 
the legend itself, the chocolate cake. If you are hearing this right now, that means you are alive and you are near a computer. Go to Portillo's.com and check out their entire selection of stuff that you can get anywhere in the United States of America. If you are blessed enough to live near a Portillo's, then you don't have to worry about going online. Just go to the store, go get the hot dogs, go get the Italian beef, go get the salads, the chicken. They got it's all great, but the chocolate cake is the single greatest item of all chocolate cake items in the history of humanity. Am I overstating that? <laughs> I am not. I am not. You go and you find out yourself. Order it online, go to a store, or if you really want to try something totally unique, the cake shake. They take the cake and they smush it <laughs> into a can with the, with, I don't know what else it is, I guess ice cream and some other stuff, and then they put it in the blender. You know how they do that? Where they yeah. take that cannish looking cup and they put it up into the blender. Next thing you know, <laughs> it comes out and they put a cookie on the straw and you're like, oh my God, this oh. is the greatest thing that ever happened. This is a warning to diabetics. It may not be perfect for Good you, Lord. but for everybody else, <laughs> it is the greatest thing you could possibly have. Go to Portillo's.com, find a location near your order online, P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S, Portillo's.com. Well, if it's Thursday, going into Friday, what shan't we watch? We have talked a little bit about House of Gucci, but I wanted to give my review here for the record and say you should not watch it. Um, it's far too long. It never. And I love Ridley Scott, and I love what he tried to do because it, it takes place, you know, from from the '60s all the way through the '90s and tells the story, the lurid and you know controversial and sensational story of the Gucci Empire and different generations and. Yeah, murder and double crossing and intrigue and all that kind of stuff. Uh, so the fashions look great. You know, the period piece uh, look, the location shots in Milan and, in, you know, all these you know, chalets yeah. and all that stuff. But there's nothing there. It's a lot of empty calories. And oh, that's too bad. A lot of overacting. So we're going to skip House of Gucci. But do we still like Lady Gaga yeah. after it as an actress? I like the photo. Uh, they released a photo of Adam Driver in like a cable turtleneck white mm -hmm. sweater. And Lady Gaga and her big hat. And you could just look at that and save yourself two hours and like 40 minutes. <laughs> right. Well, it is a fascinating story. And, and yeah. you know, the the House of Gucci changed fashion forever. And still to this very day, I thought in the as a kid that, you know, when the Gucci belt came out and, and you know, you started seeing it everywhere on television yeah. or around people. And you're like, OK, well, this is going to even as a kid, I thought, oh, it's going to oversell itself. People are going to get this is eventually going to go away because it got more garish by the moment. Yeah. Right. It went to the, the G yeah. got bigger, then it got upside down and it went a different direction. It was always gold. And it was and I'm like, OK, this is just one of those brands that is not going to sustain. And boy, was I wrong. Took it to the next level. They do talk a little bit about how a young uh, designer from Texas named Tom Ford. Yes. Uh, revolutionized everything for Gucci before becoming Tom Ford. Correct. And that part I found interesting. There's just too much of the early stuff and you know, people are polarized about the Jared Leto performance. To me, if it draws that much attention to itself, it makes Joaquin Phoenix and Joker seem like a masterclass in understated acting. You know, it's just so far over the top. All right. Also, The Unforgivable. This is a Netflix original film. That is, I, I, you know, it's a near miss, or we could say a near hit, however you want to put it, Rope. Uh, prestige Project. Uh, Sandra Bullock 
plays, this is not based on a true story, but it has that gritty feel. She plays a woman who has just done 20 years time for murdering uh, a sheriff. And she never says that she didn't do it. And we eventually find out what happened. She was holed up in a house with her younger sister and uh, they had come to evict her for you know failure to keep up with the payments. Right. And he was the, the local sheriff who came there just to kind of help the bankers get in. And she says, you're never going to come in here. And then there, a tragedy occurred. And 20 years later, she's now out of prison. She wants to try to find her little sister who she has, who was only like five at the time. Uh, the sons, the now adult sons of the sheriff want their revenge on her. John Bernthal, who's great, plays a, a fellow ex-convict who falls in love with her but doesn't know her past. Uh, Viola Davis is in there. There's all kinds of interweaving plots. Go wrong? This great cast. Uh, because when we finally find out what happened, we already knew what happened, and it just veers into such implausibility hmm. too many times. Uh, to me, this was one of the few movies I, I, I don't usually single out behind the scenes, but I really think the editing undercut this movie. The way this film is edited, if they hadn't been kind of teasing us and manipulating us, I think there's a great movie somewhere within The Unforgivable, but the finished product is not it. So... Do we still love Sandra Bullock? Yeah, we do, and she's terrific. And, you know, uh, two of her most interesting roles, Ro, in the last decade have been Netflix. She did that Bird Box horror film a right. few years back, which was a huge hit for Netflix, and this one's also very popular already on Netflix. So she's getting interesting roles, uh, and she's very good in this. There, I will say one thing, and, and I get it. It's movies. It's not completely, you know, plausible, but Sandra Bullock is 55, and she looks amazing. But according to the timeline of this story, so she would have been, let's say, her character's 50 when mm -hmm. she gets out of prison, which would have made her 30 at the time of the murder, and the little sister's five. Now, you can have a 25-year difference between sisters, but it really felt like, why didn't they just make it her daughter? It was very confusing, including to some of the characters in the movie, the timeline and the age difference. And they never really yeah. justify it. No, they yeah. really don't. All it right. doesn't make any sense. Okay. All right. And and things like that will stick with the viewer. They stick with me when I'm watching things like that. I'm immediately looking stuff up. Like I I cannot watch television or movies without having IMDB up on my phone. Yeah. So I go, yeah. where did I see that guy from? Where did when I yeah. want to learn something while the while the actual thing is going on. Stop doing that. I have to stop doing that. That's why I have to get back into the theater to see things because yeah. if i if you do if, that there you'll get yeah. kicked out of the theater right so i can't i can't do it all right well let's talk about three things to watch good stuff coming out the landscapers is a four-part self-contained dramatic series on hbo yesterday morning two bodies were found buried in the back garden of a house the more we run the more guilty we'll see we cannot confirm the circumstances under which they came to be buried in that location it's just you and me. We just have to stick to the plan. Stick to the plan. Susan. Oh, hello. 16 years ago, William and Patricia Witcherly each shot twice and buried in the rear garden of their own house. Susan Edwards, along with her husband Christopher, then set about concealing both the deaths for the next 15 years. Yes. No comment. This your signature? No comment. It's okay, Susan. Oh, sorry, that's my signature. Sorry. Now, this is based on the incredible true story. This is one of those row where you will want to read about the true life case after the fact. This stars the great Academy Award winning Olivia Coleman in one of the oh, great roles yeah. of her life. So this is the story of this nondescript, middle-aged, uh, middle-class British couple who they they kind of thought of their 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 romance even though they're very kind they're the kind of people who are invisible in public but they have each other 
Um, and they're living this life where they write to movie stars and they obtain Hollywood memorabilia and they kind of think of themselves as in this Hollywood love story. Uh, the reason they're able to kind of live a nice lifestyle is because um, uh, they killed her parents uh, 15 years previously and buried them in the backyard, <laughs> but are still receiving Social Security checks, et cetera, and everything. And that's not giving anything away. That's pretty much established from the start. But the question is, under what circumstances? Was self-defense involved? Was there something else involved? And this was a real-life very sensational murder case. You kind case. of fall in love with this couple, but you're not sure what's going on. Yeah, there. and they kind of they kind of kind of turn themselves in because they want to tell the story. But you know, in the meantime, they get you know the police get a tip and they're like, "Oh, this is silly," and they go digging in the backyard. Next thing you know, they find two 15 year old you know, skeletons. Oh boy! Uh, so it's this very kind of strange, uh, dark comedy and drama landscapers. Because it's the backyard where they had to do some landscaping oh, after they buried the mom and dad. What they did there. Uh, that's HBO. That's a limited series. Just four episodes, which I like, too. They don't they don't drag it out. Four episodes is enough for this. Yeah. I, I think we're finding that that's a sweet spot for a lot of these producers. Yep. Yep. You were going to make it into a feature film. Didn't quite make the feature film, or maybe it was in development as a feature film. And you thought, well, maybe it'll work better over here. Again, I think about the economics of these things, and I can't yeah. quite figure out how some of the bigger budget stuff makes money, and then the smaller budget stuff, when it goes straight to Netflix or whatever the over-the-top service you have is, it's still not sure if people are making more money or less money in Hollywood than they used to. It all goes into you know like three big buckets i guess that gets uh that get divvied up yeah but uh but olivia coleman is in so many great oh, things so good. So I, good. you know and there's another crown season coming out that's in production oh for now. god's sake i know enough with the crown i like the crown mm. i didn't think i'd like the crown i always make the argument that we fought a war so we didn't yeah. have to care about those people but yet when it comes on now the last season of the crown with the whole princess die thing, yeah it was pretty great i hate it and i'll watch every episode of it yeah so, yeah Beautifully done. All right. Anyway, so congratulations to her. 8-Bit Christmas is on your Thursday 3 list. Yes, I absolutely love this. I don't want to say it's an instant Christmas classic, but I did really dig this. Every kid has that one gift they want more than anything for Christmas. This is the story of mine. Bookends? They have baseballs on them. I see that. No, not those. Nintendo. A maze of rubber wiring and electronic intelligence so advanced it was deemed not a video game, but an 8-bit entertainment system. No Nintendo in my house. I second that. Looks like a no-go on Nintendo. I needed a Christmas miracle. The year was 1987, or was it 88? Super Bowl was in 86. Okay, does it really matter, Dad? Here's the conceit of this movie. Neil Patrick Harris plays a guy, a dad in present-day Chicago who takes his daughter to the family home in suburban Chicago where he grew up, and she sees this big, clunky, weird, white plastic machine in his former bedroom. What is that? And he goes, why, that's a Nintendo home entertainment system. And she says, great. What is a Nintendo home entertainment system? And then he tells her the story, kind of Princess Bride style, as okay. the narrator of how when he was in fifth grade in the late 80s, he and his buddies went on this quest to get a Nintendo home entertainment system, even one with one of those terrible magic gloves that never worked really well. So then it becomes kind of like a Christmas story. You know, instead of the uh, the rifle that the little kid wanted in a Christmas <laughs> story, it's all about trying to get the Nintendo yeah. home entertainment system. But it's very funny. Uh, it's got some very warm moments. It's filled with 80s nostalgia. You know, they got Trapper Keeper notebooks. 
and we hear, you know, songs by Loverboy and, you know, Obsession by Animotion on the soundtrack and the fashions and everything. But it's really just about, re- more than anything else, it's about that time when you're in middle school and you've got this group of friends and they're all kind of, you know, it's a diverse group. They're not exactly the most popular kids, but they find each other. And they, even though they're all about the Nintendo home entertainment system, it's really about how you sometimes make friends for life. Yeah. Right about the time when you're 12 years old. You know, and you just you're just in it together and you spend more time with your friends than you do anybody else from from school to after school to on the way to school to parties at each other's houses. And that is streaming now on some streaming service. You do your Google. You'll find it. Eight bit Christmas. Terrific, terrific film. And then a documentary I have been waiting my entire life for. (laughs) But I thought I'd already seen a couple of times the Beatles get back. Now we're going to take the Beatles and I'll be quiet. Oh, you enjoyed in our conversation. Looking for a what? What is it? Looking for a home to last. Looking for a blast from the past. We're talking about 14 songs we hope to get. I've got a feeling. How many have we already recorded good enough? None. None of us has had the idea of what the show's going to be. I've got a feeling. I would dig to play on stage, you know. Nobody else wants to do a show. I think we've got a bit shy. Oh, no! This is the great Peter Jackson, who, of course, did the Lord of the Rings films, among other things. He's been working on this for four or five years. Uh, the Beatles recording sessions for the album Let It Be, which is their penultimate album. They did Abbey Road after that. But this right. is the Beatles in 1969. Last one to come out, though. Yeah, and, yeah and, and this is 1969. And, and the cameras were there throughout because they were going to originally do a television special. And that became a documentary. And, and the film was released way back when, but it, you know it, it was kind of grainy, kind of muddy. And the Beatles and their studio, Apple Records, had control over everything. Right. So the more contentious stuff wasn't a part of it. Now we get this beautifully digitally remastered, both Which the audio. Which is so amazing, amazing. When you see that. It's like Paul McCartney is like, it's like a digital de-aging of him. It's incredible. And we're in the room with them because, again, the cameras were there all over the place, overhead shots, et cetera. And Peter Jackson and his production team in New Zealand, they have state-of-the-art ways of they can separate out if they just wanted us to hear a little bit of the guitar or Ringo talking in the background, audio conversations that were thought to be lost. He went through hundreds of hours of footage. So you see the Beatles, John, Paul, George, and Ringo composing songs, mostly Paul leading the charge and John uh, and then George Harrison kind of feeling overlooked and Ringo the whole time just saying I'm happy to be here and play the drums but it is a fascinating (laughs) look at what we still believe I believe to be the greatest pop rock band of all time creating music and kind of dispelling the notion too that they were forever at each other's throats although there are a lot of disagreements in this uh, process as well right but it doesn't mean that they were mortal blood enemies and a lot of that actually was instigated by especially the tabloid press in England, but I think it got to them where they started to believe the rumors about yeah. what the other guy was saying yeah. about him. You know, and it's interesting too, Ro, because at this point they had done everything. I mean, they had done, you know, they become the biggest stars in the world. They had, they were no longer playing the big stadiums. And then you realize 
they're like in their late 20s. They're still young. George Harrison's like 25, at 26 maybe when they're doing this. And Paul and, and, and Ringo and John are right around the 30 mark. I think Ringo is the oldest by a couple mm-hmm. of years. But they're still young men, but they've been through so much. Uh, it also, I think, is a great vindication for Yoko Ono because she's in this film a lot. She is there, but she's usually knitting. Or, or getting food. She's not really saying, like, giving lyrical choices or, you know, advice musically. Although it is interesting because after a while, then Linda Eastman, who was Paul's then-girlfriend about to become wife, she starts showing up. And then Maureen Starkey, mm-hmm. Ringo Starr's wife. Then the kids are coming. Everybody kind of went like, all right, I'll bring my family too. But most of the time, it's a family atmosphere, you see. You don't see. The bigger disagreements are George is the one who quits the Beatles halfway through the making of this and just says, well, I think, I think I'm leaving. They go, leaving what? And he's like, leaving the band. Like, what? Since when? And they get it back. You know, spoiler quiet. alert. Uh, but I just love, as you mentioned, the, the, the film is so gorgeous, a 16-millimeter film. It looks like it was shot. Like you said, it's like the Irishman. Like they shot it in present day. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, you know, two of the Beatles are, are long gone. So to see the four of them... And the joy on their faces when they're making music, and especially when they perform that famous rooftop concert. Yeah. 53 years ago. So when you wonder, like, mm-hmm. how did your grandparents act? And you imagine them as these old people yeah, now. That's true. Who, who never would have had a sense of humor about anything or wouldn't be as sly as you see these guys being with each other, which is the way that, you know, kids today or middle-aged people today would think well you know they, they weren't as cool as we were they were much cooler yeah they were yeah that's very true and you get to see all of that so even though it is uh, nearly eight hours and there's a lot of talk on the internet you're like oh they have to show everything well you can watch what you want to watch but to me right. yeah it's you know i loved every minute of it uh and that's uh, disney plus and they disney plus is doing some very smart things recently I don't know what the exact deals are right now, but there are a lot of deals right now. If you don't have Disney Plus, where you, and I know uh, one of my friends signed up for basically, I think, $4 a month over the next like year and a half. So if you look at it that way, because I know sometimes these, you know, listen, it, it adds up. Everybody looks at their bills oh. sometimes and goes, wait a minute, I didn't even know I had right. that, you know. But I think in this case, you know, and Disney Plus, they're adding a lot of stuff. It's not a commercial for Disney, but okay, it is. It's a commercial for the Beatles Get Back. I think it's instantly one of the top 10 music documentaries of all time. I saw the original of this, came out in the early mid 1980s there was a version of this yeah with the same it was basically the the same footage or some of the same footage some of the same footage yeah. was in it and it was brilliantly done back then it yeah. really makes you have such an appreciation for what their artistry really was and people you know talk about oh you know what was the big deal with the beatles well if you ask that question that means you haven't really listened to the music because it's timeless you could shakespeare would have fallen in love with the beatles yeah right and there are artists 200 years from now that will fall in love with the Beatles because there's something of the, about the songwriting, about the longing for love and acceptance. And even when they got into their hippy-dippy sort of you know white mm-hmm. album and beyond yeah. Yeah. moment where you're like, I'm not exactly sure what they're doing here. You still have to have respect for it because they bamboozled you <laughs> is what they've done. They, they've done something that makes everybody chase, chase them. And then there were all these artists at the time that were trying to chase what they were doing and then going, I, I, I don't know why what they're doing is better than what we're doing. Yeah, yeah. And this, this documentary, and, you know, again, there's so much, you know, on social media, every half-assed musician who doesn't work full-time as a musician will jump in and say, oh, they're so basic and I could do this or that. Like, well, they did it. And they were they did it first, so it's really easy. It's sort of like looking at footage of you know 
peach basket basketball or old-timey football. Oh, look at those guys. Well, yeah, but at the time, it was revolutionary stuff. Right. You got to put it in context, and this film does that. Thank you, Peter Jackson, for giving us this amazing documentary. That does it for another edition of the Rowan Roper Podcast, brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. AmericanEagle.com is a full-service global digital agency providing best-in-class web design, development, hosting, digital marketing services, and so much more. Visit AmericanEagle.com for more information. Tim Melanius and Renee Nelson are our executive producers. Demina Menezes is our editor and production director. See you next time.